Hello, I'm Philippe de Montebello, and it is my pleasure to welcome you once more to The Picture, Conversations with Aquapella Galleries. For this episode of The Picture Podcast, we'll enjoy an unscripted conversation about the legendary artist James Rosenquist and his new solo exhibition, James Rosenquist, His American Life, currently on view at Aquabella Galleries. A so-called pop artist, Rosenquist was, as we shall see, much bigger than pop. Judith Goldman, who curated the new exhibition, and Sarah Bancroft, executive director of the James Rosenquist Foundation, join gallery director Michael Findlay in a discussion about Rosenquist's life and legacy as a painter, a friend, and as a worker, a man who took pleasure in working, experimenting, and in the act of creating. Welcome once again to the picture. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Findlay. I'm a director of Aquavella Galleries, and I am very, very happy to be here in our conference room at Aquavella to celebrate and talk about James Rosenquist's American Life, an exhibition which is uh, on in our galleries at the moment and very well attended, I have to say. And with me is the curator for the exhibition, Judith Goldman, and the uh, director of the James Rosenquist Foundation, Sarah Bancroft. Sarah was uh, responsible for the great James Rosenquist uh, retrospective at the Guggenheim in, I think, 2003, which traveled to Wolfsburg in Germany and Bilbao, Guggenheim and Bilbao, is that correct? Yes, and the Menil and the MFA Houston. Wow, a big celebration and a big exhibition. And Judith Goldman, of course, been involved with James Rosenquist's work for a long time, curated his first retrospective at the Whitney Museum, is that correct, in 19... 19- well, I did the book for the retrospective. Okay, good. The book for the retrospective has written extensively about uh, James Rosenquist. My credentials are much less academic. I simply knew him since I met him in 1964 and we remained pretty much in touch, friends, and then was delighted to be able to serve as a dealer for him in the last 10 years of his life. So, Judith, uh, tell us why we did this exhibition. Well... A lot of it's in the title. The exhibition is called James Rosenquist, His American Life. And we use that title because we wanted the focus to be on where Rosenquist came from, what Rosenquist saw, the influences that really informed his vision. And we did it because we also wanted to put him in a broad context as opposed to what he is most famous for, which is being a pop artist and the painter of F-111. It was a hard idea in one sense in that what we were trying to show people, and we hope our show does, is the poetry of his paintings. And poetry is hard to put into words, which is why it's poetry. And we wanted people to look at the paintings in a new way so that they saw, one, his formal intelligence and the rigor with which he put pictures together, and they saw the amazing juxtapositions which you would normally find in a poem between hard and soft, between something totally unexpected that would ignite an idea. Sarah, do you think that, uh, this is a difficult, maybe hypothetical question, 
Do you think Jim would have liked this exhibition? Oh, absolutely. I mean, why wouldn't he have liked to see these children he created so many years ago? You've done a great job of bringing works from major collections, both private and public, important collections. And I think these are these are works he probably hadn't seen for quite some time. And I'm remembering now when he first saw all of his works on the ramps of the Guggenheim Exhibition Show, and he was kind of startled the first day of the installation when we got the first row up, and then every day he would come and just stare silently at these works. And he said, you know, these are my children. I haven't seen them for years, some of them. And similarly, I think in this show, in this space, particularly these very intimate spaces, um, we've really created this powerhouse of an exhibition. He would be very pleased. I know I am. The works look so fresh and dynamic and contemporary. Yes, I think that's something that visitors have said, mm-hmm. young people, as well as people who were the same generation as Jim. It's interesting to me that this was an idea for an exhibition that I broached with him very tentatively when he was alive, and he was originally enthusiastic, but then he kind of lost interest in it, I think because he had his focus on the future, and he just wanted to keep painting. So, as opposed to Sarah, your retrospective, which came sort of in the middle of his life, so to speak, he could take an attitude towards it of, well, I still got a lot to go. I think he saw this idea of an exhibition as being too much of a summing up. And he didn't want, he wasn't an artist who wanted to sum things up. Wouldn't you agree, Judith? He was somebody who just wanted to... Oh, I don't think he wanted to sum things up at all. But... And I don't think he wanted to explain very much. I think that the fact that we that there's a really kind of point of view on this that says these are the things he might have been thinking about or we think he was thinking about. My experience with Jim would be that if I said the painting is about this, he would say, you're absolutely wrong and I don't know where you got that idea. And if I said, but you told it to me last week, he'd say, no, I didn't. Right. So he didn't, he didn't want salt on his tail. Right, right. There were always more than one story informing a work. And and so his stories would change and evolve. And sometimes he would encapsulate all of them in an explanation or a story. And other times he would decry, no, that's not what I meant. I mean, I know, Michael, you've experienced that. I'm sure you have as well. Uh, He would contradict me when I would um, remember what he had told me about a particular work. But, you know, that's... That's the art of it. <laughs> right. That is the that is the art of it. And it's the poetry of it. Well too. I don't know how how do you think he would have felt about the fact that we want to or we are trying to emphasize the poetry of it? Oh, I think he'd love that because he always spoke about the surreality of his work rather than being a pop artist he sometimes identified himself as a surrealist and that surprises some people but I think the pop artists didn't give themselves that name it was applied to them as a group you know well and also he was the least pop of them in the sense you can count his pop pictures there's Joan Crawford there's the picture in uh, Pompidou there's maybe the picture downstairs is a little pop with about the house yeah uh the text, yeah. The text. And what else is there? And there's F-111, but F-111 to me is not a pop picture. It's a picture it's a about an era. Painting. It's a history painting. Right. What you said about surrealism struck me because I was at an auction house yesterday and looking at 
a large set of collages that Joseph Cornell did in mm -hmm. 1934 mm -hmm. from the Benil collection. As, mm -hmm. and, and it was extraordinary. I mean, right. obviously, I've got Rosenquist on the brain and always have. But it was amazing to see simply the juxtaposition yeah. of cut-out images that right. was, um, you know, it, unlike Max Ernst, Cornell did it in a kind of an American way. I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm mm -hmm. stretching no, I would that agree. too much. I think Cornell, Schwitters, these are people certainly he was aware of, you know, and came across the work. Although, as you know, Jim was never academic and he was never trying to copy anyone. It just wasn't in his repertoire to do that. And yet there are these precedents. But in terms of the poetry, I think mystery was always something yeah. he was getting at. He wanted to make mysterious paintings. And in terms of the pop element, yes, he was using popular imagery from advertisements and photographs, but subverting it to create these mysterious yeah. poetic works. So I think poetry is a really great term for the painting. One of the things that came to me when I was talking to this group of students this morning um, was about how visual information was disseminated in the middle of the 20th century. And I realized, actually, that Jim's use of Life magazine as source for collages and therefore the work was actually everybody's source for yeah. visual information. Mm -hmm. It was in everybody's homes, in, well, every American home, time life in those days. And so this was landscape to him. I mean, it was, he was taking what was common to the culture, and that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there's well, no it, one, today one it vehicle. Be, it would be CNN, or it would be information. Well, except there are far fewer people, I think. There was a commonality of, of there was... The print media. The, the print media in other words, went to the broad yeah. middle swathe of middle America, the middle class, reading all together Life magazine, don't you think? I do, and I think it's a language he knew. Yes. And it's a language yes. he, I think he always, it was always in his brain, even when that language was no longer the common language. Right. Yes. 30 years later. Oh, absolutely. And I think those things did, like the hand, was a hand that comes out of advertising, mm -hmm. whether you're, it's for ponds skin cream or it's for a dishwasher so, so. Mm -hmm. or a pair of gloves or, or whatever yeah, it is you're right yeah. yeah and it's it's interesting to me actually talking to some people looking at i was looking at um uh brighter than the sun uh with a young man on saturday and he couldn't see the upside down back of the knees with the nylon stocking wow you see it was uh, not he a just visual couldn't language see it he because he no he, I, yeah. I had the same experience with someone yeah. at the opening they could not right. see it. they said what's that they didn't know what it was because no. they didn't they've never seen stockings with seams perhaps right. <laughs> but they just they could i actually almost had to get down on the ground and roll my trousers <laughs> well even the picture to, to show them. With even yeah. the picture of lights right yes. across from it is a, yes. is a vision from another time it's a mm -hmm. snapshot but what we're forgetting about of course is that he used those images to make pictures and, and they were not necessarily, that's the tricky part of all this, what they meant. Yes, Never. as Sarah said, right, mysterious. Yeah, they were, and the mis I think he, what he would like, I have to say, I think the show does look divinely mysterious yes. when you go in the room. Michael, 
Do you think that was a success that this person couldn't recognize the imagery? Was that a success in the painting because Jim wanted to perhaps support the imagery? I think, yes. I don't think that while he used to get excited and verbose because it was his personality to talk about a picture, I think that he enjoyed mostly people who were being brought into it themselves, by themselves, and for themselves. I, do you think he ever felt there was a wrong interpretation? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he definitely. I Although, think anything, any interpretation. Whatever. Was, any, whatever okay, so yes. every interpretation Although, was wrong. Every interpretation <laughs> was wrong. And then one that was, uh, was specific. So, was to interpret he, is wrong. He wanted them to be open, and yet... For him, they were so specific. It's any artist, you know, he was a person. But the works did their work beyond him, thankfully. And I found if I spoke about the work with him, even if I didn't agree, even if I said, well, this is how it may operate out in space, out in the world, out with people or individuals, as long as I had a conversation with him, he would be like, okay, fine. I didn't always agree with him, but he definitely made it known that sometimes he thought there were very specific meanings, even if he didn't want to give those meanings to the public. Okay, I think a that's point. a really good point. Yes. He had his own private meanings in the pictures, and they were to remain private. So, so why do we think, or, or do you know the answer to this question, he, he was initially, I'm told, very reluctant to have his source collages seen and known, let alone sold. Right. And yet, at what point did he change and why? He, mm-hmm. he was very specific. He didn't want them shown because he was afraid that people would think he projected images and that he used a camera. Ah. And he could draw so beautifully and he could scale up so perfectly that he didn't want people to make a false assumption. I think that is true. And there... For underdrawing, he did do some projection. We know that, but he never painted with projection. Right. But he would some on some paintings he would project on the canvas just so that he could do some underdrawing. But the painting was always freehand, and I agree with you, Judith. Absolutely, I think he also thought that people wouldn't understand his collage process. He was very secretive about it until I think it was there were a few shown. Nineteen ninety-two, exactly it was a show in Gagosian. Yeah. Right, yeah. I did a show called. Uh, the early pictures, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of early pictures, okay. and we had collages for most of them. And, and that was the first the, time? That was the first time, and we put all the collages in the book. Okay. And he agreed. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was funny that way. He would yeah. say, no, 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 and then suddenly he'd say yes. Right. And they weren't for sale at, at that time. We Sarah, had many, it, it, yeah. it, you had them at the Guggenheim. We did. Yeah. We included... A great number. We framed a lot of them, but we we yeah. did spend a lot of time convincing them that no, we're going to treat these as artworks because I think he wasn't sure they were artworks for him. They were working documents. Yes. I think that's conceptual. A really pieces. important. Yes, for yes. him, yes. they were working yes. documents, and the he fact that people wanted to buy them, that people yes. regarded them as art. I think he would have been amazed the other night how many people yes. upstairs all wanted to buy. Right. Yes, a, a exactly. Certainly in the Guggenheim show, he got it, and he ended up parting with some major, like a, a the body of F-111 collages he parted with. Right. And I think they're now a promised gift or a partial gift to the modern, to the to modern, the modern. Yes. which makes sense. So it's also, there's something about seeing your work framed on a wall, presented in a different way than you may have 
conceived of it yourself, that he recognized, oh, these are actually working quite well. And he was very happy. And frankly, they are so gorgeous. And it's such a delight to see them here. And it's also so interesting because things that you think, like the comb in The Light That Won't Fail, which when you look at the painting, you think, oh, that must be from a photograph and it's hand-drawn. Mm -hmm. Right. So Yes, not everything. Not was, everything yeah. is, is, is actually it's taken from a magazine. It's always a combination, actually. And I think yeah. it's that combination between his hand and the Life magazine clipping that makes them so intriguing. The drawing right. of it. The drawing of it. Yes, and he was very proud of he was very proud of that. Hmm. I, I can remember early on in his relationship with Aquavella, he came in uh, one day and I think you had something to do with it. He had done a, a, a painting for the Metropolitan oh, Opera Tosca. Of, of Tosca, yeah. which involved a woman's face. And we were showing that to Bill Aquavella, who said naturally, well, I wish you'd do a lot. You should do a lot more of these, uh, you know, attractive women. You know, we can really sell those paintings. And Jim got, he said, well, I don't, I'm not going to, but I can do it. I can. He said, I can really, really paint very, very well. It was, it was a double thing. He got very excited about, about, I'm proud about the fact that I can do that. Well, but he didn't want to. Also, he drew so beautifully. And the modern did a show of his big drawings, these gigantic drawings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fantastic, but he never would draw very much. Do you, know, you have any I idea? I don't think. Yeah, I don't think they're exhibited that often. You're yeah, right. He did large, large shots. We have the one we have, we have, one we have from the Whitney. Right. Beautiful. It's gorgeous. Uh, House of Fire. He, he, it's, I think it's the only one he ever made on uh, Mylar. There's a body of drawings on Mylar from the '80s that are dynamic and really gorgeous, like that. But I think a lot of them didn't necessarily. Or aren't shown very often, but they're quite strong and gorgeous. I've never I've private seen, collections. I've seen so few of them. When he did those very very big paintings in the in the eighties, um, did he do drawings for those? The billboard paintings. Yes. The one he did with the shoes, I can't remember the title. Oh, yes, the, through the eye of the oh, needle to the shoes. angle. Needle? No. Yeah. He created collages. There were collages. Yeah, yeah. Collages. Right. so it was yeah. a large collage, but by large, it's still manageable to hold in his hand, and he would use it to paint. He'd usually, he would scale right. up, he would grid the collage, and then he would grid the massive canvas right. and scale yes. up and, and paint that way. Sometimes he would have a number of studies, but there would be one master collage from which he would paint. The drawing studies were mostly for commissions like Swimmer and the Economist, which had three paintings. Yeah. And there are a number yes, of drawings right. for that, kind and of conceptualizing. There's a beautiful drawing for the painting at the Met, uh, Flowers, Fish, yes. and Females. Yes. Right. And yes. that was actually part of the commission. So oh, he, right. the he, commission, was to, he agreed to do that. He agreed to yes. do that, and I think the drawing precedes the, mm -hmm. the painting yeah. as part of the commission. There's some gorgeous kind of large-scale vertical drawings, and I feel like there aren't a lot, but just charcoal. Do, do we think that some of that work was lost in Arapika, in the fire, that he had mm -mm. drawings? I know he had quite a lot of graphic work. His, yes. his, his, his print archive was destroyed. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and I think most of those prints had literally just arrived, like, days before, so it was so tragic. down. Yes. Yeah. 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 But I don't know that a lot of the drawings were lost. I think a lot of the drawings went out into the world, particularly right. the larger drawings. So that's a, that's another dimension. 
that yet to be to be fully explored. Now, when people came in the other day, like on Saturday, yeah. what were the particular paintings they were looking at? Well, I didn't <laughs> follow them around. No, no, I know, but I'm just thinking of what <laughs> um, which ones that. Uh, I, I think you Lanai is a big favorite. <laughs> I think huh? Lanai is Lanai, a big favorite, yeah, yeah. particularly on a rainy day. Because right. It, it, uh, so but the painting um, uh, from the Museum of Modern Art, yeah. uh, the one that we use as a mm -hmm. poster. Untitled. Untitled, yeah. People are astonished to see that. Yeah. And, and I think it's very interesting that they haven't seen it, even mm -hmm. though it lives here in New York and it has not been shown a great deal. Right. Um, I don't think it's ever been shown. I don't. Uh, I think on maybe special exhibitions, but it's not on. Up it would have been collection. shown when they showed the uh, gifts of Philip Johnson. That's okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it would have certainly. That would have been shown. And I think it's a very interesting aspect that throughout his work is that he has made occasional forays into I don't know what the technical word <laughs> for it would be, but additions, things that are elements that are objects of some sort that are part of the, attached to or part of the painting, whether they are yes. a tiny little light bulb in, in the middle, right. which I think is, is the case with the painting that we borrowed for an exhibition we did in 2005 of monochrome paintings. It's a, it was from the Panzer de Bormo collection. It's at Mocha. Mm -hmm. yes. um, it's waves. waves. Yes, and it has a tiny little light bulb in the middle that um, Jim was very anxious to repair, but the museum would not allow him to <laughs> replace it, <laughs> which of course is a whole other story. Um, sometimes they work and sometimes they, they, don't. they right. don't. It's such a hard, difficult question. I know with each work, from my perspective in the foundation and dealing with works in the estate and beyond, it's really a case-by-case -case situation. I know there's a work called Yellow Applause as well, similar yes, to Two Hands Clapping. Very much the same. And Jim asked his guys, his preparators, to replace the motor on occasion. So in that case, since you don't see the motor and it's not inherent yes. to the conceptual aspect of the work for the safety of the work, the motor has been updated on occasion to make it safe. And you can adjust the speed and the kind of crashing power because it's a painting you don't want to lose paint and it's it's in fine condition but you know you want them to kind of smack each other gently um but it's it's really it's a tough question like is it right to restore works to contemporary standards or keep them well, as the artist created there's a russian book called broadcast right. which was tuned to an am station in new york and i think when it went to the show at the guggenheim <laughs> He, he re-rigged it so that there's a, because the AM station no longer exists, there's a tape recording behind it so that now if it's turned on, you will hear a tape recording. So, but, but, but technically then perhaps you date that work <laughs> from the time he originally did it to right. the time that he, he changed it. I, I think what's interesting about Jim's attitude and his approach is he wants to do something at the time that works. Obviously, right. he wants it to keep working, but he's not terribly concerned. <laughs> if he no, and I also it, think it's a little bit of a, a sideline. I mean, it's not yeah. as many Yes, it's a sideline. It's a sideline. It's like the way he loved cars. In Arapika, it looked like a car dealership when you on your right. way to the house. And there was every imaginable <laughs> yes. kind of car and every imaginable... Yeah. And tractor. Kind, and tractor and broken and... and, and the. 
one of the first times I went there, and I must have been writing something, he said, whatever you do, don't mention the cars. Because, <laughs> and in the big studio, there was the most beautiful, probably 1952 Aqua Chevrolet. Do you remember that? Yes, it was gorgeous. perfect. It had white wall tires. It was irresistible to describe, to talk about, and it was verboten. I think he didn't, well, he didn't want anyone to think he lived with a used car lot in his front yard. I, th <laughs> I think there was that aspect to it. He had a lot of land to put these cars yeah. on. A lot of them were not working. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Because I, mean, my, I have had an older brother whose entire yeah, young career was spent taking watches apart. Mm -hmm. But he right. never put one back together. That's <laughs> true. And the not working sort of speaks to what, you were talking about about when the piece stops working, the actually the painting yes. stops working. Right. Yes. I don't know that having it work was important. I think depending on the painting, with the light bulb, with that painting, he was okay with it because the conceptual idea of reification is you turn on the light switch like an idea, yeah. a creative idea. And that's yes. what an artist does. They reify abstract ideas into a concrete form so that was a very specific painting but i'm so curious to hear about waves that he wanted to replace that light bulb at the center of the painting well it's Michael's interesting collection. because now i realize there's a light bulb theme in, in yeah. his work yes, there is. from that yeah, to reification to oh, a painting he did with the pencils coming to a clock a.m a physical sculpt, yeah, yes. uh, sculpture. What's it called? It's called Two O'Clock A.M. That's part of the title. Also, he has a painting from with a light bulb in the middle of it, and yeah. is that from Infinity to Beyond, the artist's life? Right, and also think about the title, The Light That Won't Fail. The Light right. That Won't Fail. And that's right. about, the light bulb is inspiration, right. I think. I think, yeah. I really well, think, the, yeah, the, idea, the, the idea, the idea of being idea. inspiration. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, um, it's the cartoon of the, yes, the little is. light bulb. Yes, it is, it's going on, but also... Um, his first exhibition, a new work here, he had a, a which was about time clocks, mm, and yes. he had a one painting which had a slit towards the top of it, and he had rigged a laser clock, which was supposed to shoot two red dots around the wall, one for the seconds and one for the minutes, and it never quite worked except. At the opening, <laughs> and briefly, like, and he spent right. quite a lot of time on that. I mean, trying to, but it was the it wasn't that he couldn't do it. It was that the mechanism was so delicate that the the painting shifted. The whole thing had mm -hmm. to be using lasers as the hands of a clock. Yes, is it was probably yes. precarious. I think yes. he's you're right. He did spend a lot of time conceptually working out these ideas and asking his preparators to translate them into a physical form. And it took time. It often took time for them to perfect these mechanisms. And I admire his confidence because he was like, nope, this is important to me. And even if it wasn't initially successful, it was important enough to him that he, without shame or embarrassment, just keep on going right. with it. Yeah. And I think it always led back to painting in the yeah, end. Yeah, because I was saying we're getting away from his painting, yeah. we're getting away from his painting, I right. think, into his other um, contraptions. His side life. His side life. And yeah, I think okay. it was, in a way, a bit of a, a side yes, line. Yes, yes, I think, yes. I don't think it yes. was the crucial part. But the very simplicity 
of the painting that started this discussion, the one, one, two, the, one, three, two outside. three right. outside, of the of the of the continuation or sort of the continuation of the sides, and a wire across the top right. and the and, negative space and the negative space yeah. and if if we had to pick out one painting in the show that suggested or really showed the kind of poetry that we wanted mm-hmm. to show yes. in his work. Yes. That might be it. That's just the two, or maybe three elements. There's this shiny blue enamel of the car. Yeah. There's this pink satin. Mm-hmm. They don't seem yeah. to go together, but he's put them together. Right. And then there's these strange pieces of wood going up in the wire across, which is right. continuing the pain, but which I thought looked like the highway. I thought mm-hmm. it looked like... Ah, oh, okay. Going okay, on yes, into space. Yes, yes. And because the titles are always clues, even though they might not mean it. Right. Even though he'll say no, but I always think of the title mm-hmm. Lanai as being Absolutely. the name of an island, the mm-hmm. Hawaiian island, the home of Doyle Pineapple. It's also oh. the English word for veranda, which yes. is very lush. And you suggest yeah. something, a Lanai suggests something very green. And then you've got this utterly jangled uh, painting with photogravier colors and a woman mm-hmm. smoking dope and yeah. handing it out of the picture plane, and it's anything but lush. He spoke to me once about Lanai because I was so confused about the title, and I didn't say, I'm so confused about the title. I was like, Lanai, tell me about this painting. And he said, oh, well, it's like 60s culture, the hotel's Lanai, where you have this like young starlet hanging out, waiting for her, the big right. call, to, you know, and the peaches are like she's hanging out at this hotel and it's like continental breakfast and to him it was this whole <laughs> narrative but, but he made it after yes. his first trip to los angeles that that's a fate that's certainly uh, a favorite oh i think oh, yeah, i don't know I mean, you could word. pick out any one of those paintings and um the lines the, the lines that etched deeply in her face which mm-hmm. is a painting that that we're finally able to see, to borrow successfully is great to actually see. I have to say, I always love seeing above the square. That's one of my... Is that one of your favorites? That's one of my favorites. It's hard to choose, but that's... It's so Why? esoteric and gorgeous. Because I speak. it speaks to his billboard painting. If you think about it conceptually, it's kind of like the edge of a billboard, but he's focused on the sky beyond. It's kind of pushed the billboard out of the center of the painting... Yeah. To me, it's almost like a self-portrait of that time in his oh, life. I, I got that only when, after it had been hung, and I walked into that room here. I'd seen it, of course, most recently at the Ludwig, where it was prominent, but the space was so big, yes. I wasn't as aware of the size of the painting. And mm-hmm. now it's in a smaller it's room. A right. I was really yeah. shocked. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, yeah. you know, I was taken aback. I stepped back. It's a big mm-hmm. pain. It, it gave me that billboard feel. I know exactly what, right. what you mean. Yeah. 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 It speaks to his experience and the esoteric nature of both his painting and like bringing all these strange elements of his past commercial mm. work into fine art mm. painting. I think what what is really interesting is the reaction of other painters to his yes. work and the admiration with which they they hold mm-hmm. for him and you know whether it's David Sally or Frank Stella or um, Jeff Koons or Eric Fischel it doesn't there was a whole generation that understood this but what they really also understood was how he could paint yeah Jim was very pr- he I remember him telling me I use long paint I learned how to make long paint 
doing billboards. Mm-hmm. He said de Kooning used long paint because right. he painted billboards. And I was once in Paris with him, and I don't know who the artist was, but he went running up to this swirl of white paint and said, look at that paint. Wow. Look at the way he put that paint on. You know, he would call himself a working stiff, and he and would he, yeah. complain if he were on vacation and not in his studio, he just wanted to get back in the studio. I'm sure you both heard this, where he'd be like, I just want to get home and start painting again. But when is the last time we've seen this many works from the 60s into the 80s? The last painting in this show is in the 80s, I believe. 1982. Um, when is the last time we've seen this body of work of this quality and magnitude in New York? And it not only shows us what a fabulous well, painter he was, but also he, he's a painter's painter. Yeah, I and I think that's why point. you're seeing a draw as well. He uh, really is a painter's painter. I think worker is really important, yeah. too. I think that the, the combination of this really working stiff sensibility <laughs> and this high aesthetic uh, visual artist is, right. is kind of yes. amazing. I think. Yeah. So, we didn't uh, talk yeah. about what we should talk that's about, white bread, because... Yeah. That's such a wonderful yeah. story. <laughs> if you look at the the crust of the bread, you'll see the initials of Ellsworth Kelly kind of spelled out in the crust, an E and a an K. And then when you see the source collage for the painting, it's also, he says, for Ellsworth Kelly. And of course, he and Ellsworth um, were both working on Cohen T. Slip together in the same building and were quite good friends and actually... Ellsworth Kelly picked up scraps from Jim's yeah. studio after Jim moved out they and stopped kept them for years. Friends. Well, that was later. <laughs> he did lend things to the Guggenheim show, but some of the elements that he kept, Jim, Jim just thought Jim. were trash. Yeah, he didn't. Oh, but others were There were really, a couple of nice ones. because yes. I, I, oh, I didn't yeah. know this at all. Um, yeah. Ellsworth picked them up off of the studio floor <laughs> right. and kept them. Kept them. Ah. Then we, I was doing a show with, with Barbara Costelli mm-hmm. of the of collages right and we tried to borrow we borrowed them yes from elsworth jim had a fit (laughs) he was not happy and there's one of is it marilyn that drawing of marilyn yes it's gorgeous it's a study it's a study for the painting at the museum of modern art and who owns that now Ellsworth? Uh, yeah, I mean, I now that Ellsworth's gone, I'm not sure who it's. That was in that was in yeah. Ellsworth's collection. Yeah, we borrowed that for the Guggenheim show, and Jim was okay with that, but he was not okay with some of the other okay. things. So that one he may have given. Well, he was he was actually no, angry that he'd gone yeah. in and taken the stuff off his floor and kept it. Probably yeah. should include <laughs> so getting back to the painting itself. Yeah, they were close friends at the time, and obviously that painting. And Jim oh, was inspired by. Well, the other thing that's really important, though, is, of course, it's about the abstraction yes, in Jim's absolutely. painting. So yes. everybody looks at Ellsworth's white paintings. bread, is it yeah. white bread? And, yeah. and they think it's just two slices right. of bread with some margarine. And then you look, and it's E.K. Mm-hmm. And then if you just look at the E.K., of course, it's completely abstract. It's right. just these lines in space. Yeah. Which, I think, is why the collage is owned by Frank Stella. Because Frank, St- and Frank Stella keeps it next to him in his bedroom, yes. and he loves it. Yeah, um, and great. I think what he loves about it is probably the joke for artists. Yeah, right. it's an in joke. It's an in joke, but it's, maybe it, it means it's it a, a very germane one. It might mean that elsewhere it's nothing but a piece of white bread. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a good note to finish off on. <laughs> well, I just want to thank Sarah and Judith for uh, their time, their energy, their effort, what they have done 
with and for James Rosenquist over the years and contribution to this exhibition. And um, thank you. And from all of us, thank you for joining us in this episode of The Picture, Conversations with Aquavella Galleries.